Normally here I'd have street noise, so you can hear the honking of cars passing by Federal Plaza, maybe some tourist kids laughing and chasing each other among the long stretching legs of Alexander Calder's massive safety red modern art sculpture called Flamingo. There might be some lawyers chatting as they cross the plaza heading to the Dirksen Federal Courthouse on the east side of Dearborn, or some overheard side chatter about Mies van der Rohe from one of the red-shirted Chicago Architecture Foundation walking tours that seems to haunt the place. Skate kids try and fail to land trick after trick after trick. But COVID, Illinois shelter-in-place order, and no audio captured in advance means that the architecture tours, skate kids, and lawyers are at home. My only available B-roll is either my washing machine, the ticking clock from my bathroom, or my toddler asking to be picked up Uppa. It's super adorable, by the way. So, in lieu of the street noise I'd normally use to set the scene, David Letterman. Now, listen to this. Last week, uh, having been impeached after six years as governor of Illinois, our first guest was removed from his post and banned uh, from ever again holding elected office in that state, and you think you had a tough week. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome uh, former Governor Rod Blagojevich. Here we go. <laughs> exactly are you here? Honest to God. What? <laughs> well, you know, the, I've been wanting to be on your show in the worst way for the longest time. Well, you're on in the worst way, believe me. <laughs> yeah, this is the Rod Blagojevich episode. And the George Ryan episode. The Patrick Fitzgerald episode. Barack Obama, Donald Trump. The cast of The Daily Show and The View. Anderson Cooper and Ellen DeGeneres. John Burge and Lou Diamond Phillips. The first episode of this podcast was about Second Ward thug Black Jack Yaton in the late 1800s, when politics meant violence. Episode 2 saw Hinky Dink Kenna and bathhouse John Coughlin in the early 1900s, when politics meant image. Episode 3 visited Ed Burke and Ed Verdoliak in the 1980s, when politics meant control and backroom manipulation. Now we're in the 21st century with Rod Blagojevich, when politics means celebrity. Our president is a game show host. Former VP candidate Sarah Palin was recently unmasked as the bear on Fox's The Masked Singer. Elizabeth Warren does TikToks with Saturday Night Live's Kate McKinnon, and I love that damn video. I am still pissed off Warren dropped out of the race. In the years since Jack Kennedy brought sexy back, we've seen Richard Nixon have laugh-in, Saka to him, and America twice elect the star of Bedtime for Bonzo, to head our nuclear arsenal. Over the last half of the 20th century and the first two decades of the 21st, whatever line separated statesmen from sideshow Barker has blurred and thinned. And no one straddled that line between politician and celebrity better than disgraced former pistachio salesman Rod Blagojevich. Rod Blagojevich does it innocently. Wonderful pistachios. Get cracking. If you're looking for a podcast breaking down Rod Blagojevich's rise and fall in immaculately researched detail, 
I recommend Public Official A, produced by Chicago Public Radio Station WBEZ. This podcast isn't going to get into that because it's not needed. We know Rod Blagojevich's story, at least the broad strokes. He was the governor with the big hair who was convicted of trying to sell Barack Obama's Senate seat. He was the governor who tried to shake down a children's hospital, demanding a $50,000 campaign contribution before he released $8 million in state money that the hospital was due. He was the governor caught on an FBI wiretap saying, I've got this thing and it's fucking golden. And he was the governor who tried to laugh it all away, showing up on reality shows and any talk show that would have him, turning what should have been a moment of triumph for the state, the election of a local politician to the presidency of the United States of America, into yet another punchline about Illinois politics. Let's say you're the present governor of Illinois and you're in a room with a former governor of Illinois on your right and a former governor of Illinois on your left. Chances are the room you're in is jail. So this episode isn't about what Rod Blagojevich did. It's about what he means. I chose to start this story here in Chicago's Federal Plaza. Either staying socially distant from all other plaza denizens or using the power of imagination like you're a 1980s Muppet baby, look around the plaza. You're surrounded by three sides, by black glass and steel federal buildings. They're from a time when glass and steel boxes were exciting new architecture, not just another board cube condo plopped down in your neighborhood and flattening your favorite bar. There's the short squat post office just west of the Flamingo. To your south is the 42-story John C. Klesinski Federal Building, the tallest of the trio. And across Dearborn to the east, the Dirksen Federal Courthouse. To get a taste of the level of detail architect Ludwig Mies van der Rohe took in planning the plaza, look at the seams in the concrete beneath your feet, then crane your neck towards the post office. You'll see that each seam in the outdoor plaza lines up perfectly with each structural girder and lobby tile inside the building. You're on the same block where Blackjack Yataw and disgraced ex-cop John Fletcher from the first episode hauled their drunken fellow U.S. Deputy Marshal after they killed a man on Election Day 1884. You're on the same block where, decades later, Al Capone went on trial for tax evasion. The Dirksen Courthouse across the street from you was the only building Ludwig Mies van der Rohe lived to see. It's been the home to mob trials and three separate gubernatorial convictions. The 1968 Democratic National Convention protesters called the Chicago Seven had both trial and retrial here, posing outside for a famous shot of them roughhousing after their convictions were overturned. But for our purposes right now, it's the building that used to house the offices of one man who took down two separate Illinois governors, former U.S. Attorney Patrick Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald, who is U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Illinois from 2001 to 2012, is now a rainmaker at Skadden Arps. During his time in public service, Fitzgerald was an incredible advocate for good government and the rule of law. He took down two corrupt governors, police captain John Burge, who oversaw torture squads, aides in Daly Jr.'s trucking scandal, and media mogul and real-life James Bond villain, down to his James Bond villain name, Conrad Black. Patrick Fitzgerald has been an undeniable force of good time and time again. 
that does not mean I have to like him. I don't like Fitzgerald because of his handling of the Plame affair in the early 2000s. Then Vice President Dick Cheney's chief of staff, Scooter Libby, was accused of leaking the name of an undercover CIA operative to the press. Fitzgerald was tasked with the investigation. To get journalists to reveal the person within the George W. Bush administration who gave them Valerie Plame's name, Patrick Fitzgerald started throwing working journalists in jail. He would give journalists grand jury summons, then, if they refused, toss them in jail for contempt. The New York Times' Judith Miller spent 85 days in a jail cell. Time Magazine's Matt Cooper was days away from his own cell when his source released him from his pledge of secrecy. Cooper testified. Neither journalist had ever published the name of the CIA operative. They just knew it. They knew the name, and they knew their rights as journalists and as American citizens. And they ended up in jail or close to jail for that. Then Fitzgerald didn't charge Scooter Libby with being the leak. He filed five charges against Libby, all about Libby lying about and obstructing the investigation, not the leak that the investigation was about. An agent of the federal government imprisoned working journalists to get information, then didn't use that information. I don't like that. Patrick Fitzgerald is the villain of the Plame affair, but he is no villain. Imprisoned journalist Judith Miller, who went on to work for Fox News and Newsmax, is no hero. In the words of then-Boston Globe columnist Robert Kuttner, Miller, quote, worked hand-in-glove with the Bush administration to publish bogus stories about Saddam Hussein's alleged nuclear program. Miller was one of the main sources of the weapons of mass destruction myth that got the U.S. into a war that has killed hundreds of thousands of people, a war we're still in 17 years later. She would unquestioningly report as truth information Iraqi National Congress founder Ahmad Chalabi handed her about metal tubes, mobile weapons labs, al-Qaeda ties, and other invasion-spurring fictions, feeding both the New York Times audience and her close allies within the Bush administration. The 2004 New York Magazine article about Miller, Chalabi, and the Iraq war was called The Source of the Problem. This is our hero in the Plame Affair and she is no hero. I think too often in Chicago, we get caught trying to DB the world into saints and sinners. Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Who's Elliot Ness? Who's Al Capone? The world is more complicated than that. Always was. Another narrative I feel the city falls into too often is the idea that corruption is somehow cute and folksy, a clever Chicago-y way to lube the wheels of bureaucracy and get things done. Hey, it's the Chicago way. Let's get a deep dish pizza and go to the jewels. That narrative is a lot harder to sustain when a story involves six dead children. In 1994, the Willis family from the south side of Chicago was driving through Wisconsin in the middle of the night when they hit a piece of tailpipe that had fallen off a semi-truck. There was a fiery crash. All six children in the car died. Their parents survived. Their parents watched. A federal investigation later revealed several things. First, it revealed that other motorists had tried to flag down the trucker to tell him the tailpipe looked like it was going to be coming loose. He ignored them and kept driving. The whole thing was preventable. Second, 
and more disturbing, it uncovered that the truck driver had no business driving a truck. He hadn't obtained his commercial driver's license by passing the test. Instead, he had bribed an official at the Secretary of State's McCook testing facility. Republican patronage workers had been complaining for years about the unqualified drivers the McCook facility had been spewing out, complaining to their bosses of applicants hitting orange cones during tests or skipping the line to go straight to the manager's office for specials, but still emerging with licenses. Sometimes it was political clout, sometimes it was cash payment, but thousands of unqualified drivers hit the streets with the blessing of the Secretary of State's office, and the money kept filtering up to George Ryan's campaign fund. But it was the death of Reverend and Mrs. Willis's six children that got two of those whistleblowers, Tammy Rayner and Tony Berlin, an audience with federal prosecutors, who launched the investigation known as Operation Safe Road. One thing to know is that this was a Republican scandal, with a central figure, Secretary of State, later Governor George Ryan, a downstate Illinois GOP pharmacist, rather than the stock image of a slick Chicago Democrat attorney so often depicted in these scandals. But let us not confuse image and reality. And let us not pretend folksy ways mean innocence. In the words of the Chicago Tribune in 2003, quote, Almost from the moment he walked into the Secretary of State's office in early 1991, the indictment alleges, the backslapping druggist-turned-career politician hung a for-sale sign on contracts controlled by his administration. Ryan and his unpaid advisor, Larry Warner, ran the Secretary of State's office with an eye towards their pocketbooks. Warner bought a building for $200,000, and Ryan set it up as a Secretary of State office location, paying his pal a four-year rent of $850,000 of taxpayer money. Ryan and his wife took regular vacations to Jamaica, paid for by a currency exchange owner Ryan later steered a half-million-dollar six-year Secretary of State's office lease to. The Ryans went to Mexico on a trip paid for by a person Ryan later steered another office lease to and a $200,000 lobbying job that required almost no work. Despite the lavish, vacation-loaded lifestyle the Ryans were living, investigators found Ryan and his wife's total withdrawals from their bank accounts averaged less than $700 a year for the previous 10 years. Ryan's former chief of staff, Scott Fowle, dropped a bombshell in the form of a 555 page list Ryan had him compile to keep track of all the political favors he had delivered or promised. It was a list meant to be referred to when Ryan wanted to get a favor returned. Fowle often had tears in his eyes as he testified, telling jurors he was only turning on his former boss to reduce his, Fowle's, fiance's impending jail time. Uh, don't cry too much for Scott Fowle. His charges include shredding literal garbage bags full of evidence of illicit campaign fundraising. A lot of the favors on the foul list and that Orion was alleged to have sold were license plate numbers, specifically low-digit or single-digit ones. Warner got the license plate of the letter O. The foul list also revealed Ryan procured a low-digit plate for mob boss Tony Big Tuna Accardo. And this brings us to this episode's extra bonus material. When I started this podcast, I planned to post supplemental material for each episode on Patreon.com, charging you guys to see, hear, touch, or explore whatever I put up. Both COVID-19, I felt it 
borderline evil to ask for money right now. So on Thursday, I'll post for free on this podcast an extra episode called The Ballot of License Plate 1. It'll be a look at Illinois politicians' weird obsession with low-digit plates by tracking the hidden history of the most coveted plate in the state's political history, a plate that passed from archbishops to criminals to widows to a secret state stash, the plate that was just the number one. Look out for the extra episode on Thursday, and if you like what you hear, take the money you would have given me on Patreon and use it to sponsor a bar or a restaurant at chicagoservicerelief.com. Anyway, back to George Ryan. Patrick Fitzgerald was one hell of a prosecutor, and Ryan's aides and associates were being picked off one by one. The McCook testing facility closed in the year 2000, in part due to the fact no one wanted to get their CDL there. The assumption would be that they bought their license. Now Governor George Ryan knew in 2002 what was coming down the pike, so he didn't run for re-election. With less than 48 hours left in his time as governor of Illinois, George Ryan in January 2003 commuted the death row sentences of every single person on Illinois' death row to life in prison. With all this coming down, he spared the lives of 167 death row inmates. Wait, what? Yeah, that's weird. George Ryan had long been an opponent of the death penalty. In 2000, he had put a moratorium on executions in the state. And whatever your personal opinion of the death penalty is, we're talking about the death penalty in Illinois, a state with Chicago, a city with a long and documented history of police beating confessions out of suspects, often black men. Some of the men whose sentences George Ryan commuted were later found to be innocent, victims of Chicago police commander John Burgess' torture squads. Innocent lives were spared because of George Ryan's actions. Six children are dead because of George Ryan's actions. Reality is complicated. Okay, but why do it at all? Some people think George Ryan was trying to curry favor. He knew he was doomed to trial, so he wanted to get a good deed under his belt so the judge would go light on him in sentencing. Others thought that, in a weird way, this scandal was an opportunity to do something he'd wanted to do for a long time. I mean, what, were people not going to re-elect him after this? He was done as governor in January 2003, charged with a slate of crimes in December 2003, and convicted in April 2006, sentenced to six and a half years in prison, making him Illinois' third governor to go to prison. When George Ryan walked into a Wisconsin federal prison in November 2007, incidentally, the same federal prison former House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Dan Rostenkowski served a portion of his time in, the office of the governor of Illinois was finally untainted by allegations of corruption that lasted 13 months. Governor Rod Blagojevich, elected as a reformer in the wake of Ryan's scandals, was arrested at his Chicago home in December 2008 in a tracksuit as he prepared for his morning jog. So when George Ryan was up against the wall, he commuted the death row sentences of 167 inmates. He ended up getting nominated for a Nobel Prize for that, 
while facing his criminal corruption charges. Rob Lagojevich had a different move. Hi, I'm Rob Lagojevich. I'm backstage at the Ellen DeGeneres show. He started a huge, insane, several-year-long publicity campaign doing Elvis impersonations at block club parties, charging $50 an autograph at the Wizard World Chicago comic book convention. Second City, the comedy theater on the north side, was doing a show at the time called Rod Blagojevich Superstar, sort of a Jesus Christ superstar spoof. Rod Blagojevich made guest appearances in a comedy show about his own crimes. He also went on The View, where Joy Behar ruffled his hair. Things are hairy in more than one way for Rod Blagojevich these days. Remember that? <laughs> and The Daily Show, where Jon Stewart ruffled his hair. May I begin with this? Yes. <laughs> yeah. You gonna rest my hair <laughs> To be fair to The Daily Show, when Blagojevich was a guest again a year later in 2010, Jon Stewart held the former governor to task for some of the claims from his first go-around. You said on the show, show, show him what he said. This is Evan Golden. What comes next is, and I can't quote it because I could, but I, I'm prohibited because my accuser won't let me. Is, Give me a general paragraph. Generally, it was about a role for me in healthcare. It was about helping the state of Illinois. And it was about politics. It had nothing to do with financial gain or selling a U.S. Senate seat. Okay. So that was the tape you said if I could only have heard the next little bit. Well, the next it's the whole tape, okay. which but talks so here's, about DHS. Here's DHS. the next little bit of that tape. I mean, I, I've got this thing, and it's golden. And I, I'm just not giving it up for nothing. I'm not going to do it. And, and I can always parachute, use it, and parachute me there. Now, you're talking about yeah. getting yourself appointed to the Senate. Hold on. As the governor, <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. To be less fair to The Daily Show, it was more blago as normal in 2011, when correspondent John Oliver, now of HBO's Last Week Tonight, incorporated the former governor into a Heart of Darkness slash Apocalypse Now spoof. When he was traveling around northern Illinois, including my hometown Rockford, go Auburn Knights, to find several Republican Wisconsin legislators who had fled their state to prevent a vote on a union bill. I'd arranged a meeting with a notorious former warlord. Apparently, no one knew this region better than him. Oh boy. Hi, welcome to Illinois. Can you just walk around here? Yeah. Do you know where they are? No, I, I don't know where they are. If you had that information, would you sell it to me? I would not. Because that information would be golden. Blagojevich then went into a screed about what he actually finds bleeping golden is fighting for the working people. That was Blagojevich's rate of exchange. In return for publicly humiliating himself and his family, he got a stage. All eyes on him and a celebrity host to ruffle his hair. As State House reporter Rich Miller of Capital Facts wrote in the Illinois Times column earlier this year, quote, he will say anything, literally anything, to stay in the public eye, no matter how far from the truth it might be. Rob Blagojevich's reward for his TV appearances wasn't book sales or a chance to prove his innocence. His reward was that he got to be on TV. He turned the words he used to try and sell our government into a catchphrase. Bazinga! Dynamite! Oh my god, they killed Kenny! I've got this thing and it's fucking golden. And I'm not giving it away for fucking nothing. 
Blagojevich tried but failed to get on a reality show called I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. It was a survivor-type show where low-grade celebrities were put in the jungle and forced to compete in different challenges. The judge wouldn't loosen Blagojevich's travel restrictions to let him go to Costa Rica for the show. So Blagojevich's wife took his place. Patty Blagojevich, the former first lady of Illinois and herself a member of the then-powerful Mel dynasty of Chicago politicians, ate a dead tarantula on national television in a head-to-head face-off challenge with La Bamba star Lou Diamond Phillips. She lost. Phillips ate his tarantula faster. To me, the saddest part of the I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here story is that the celebrities competed for money to be given to a charity of their choosing. One of the charities Patty Blagojevich approached turned her down cold. They wanted nothing to do with her or her money, telling the Chicago Tribune, quote, We want to be a respectable organization and not hurt any of the people that support us and that we work with. It was a pediatric cancer charity, one with strong existing ties to Children's Memorial Hospital. Right there, you can get a glimpse into the method behind the madness, as just plain goofy as these appearances might seem, Blagojevich let the people laugh at him, then got what he wanted. He played a passionate reformer while John Oliver needled him about selling information. His family played at being patrons of children's health in a Costa Rican jungle, while prosecutors in Illinois were accusing him of shaking down Children's Memorial Hospital, now known as Lurie's Children's Hospital. Why did he choose to do a commercial for pistachios, of all things? So he could send out a press release that called the product, quote, Like the accusations against me, they're nuts. He knew what he was doing. His first trial ended in a hung jury, but he was convicted of 17 of the charges in his second trial. He was sentenced to 14 years in prison, where George Ryan, whose story involves six dead children, got six and a half years. It would be easy to make fun of Blagojevich's weird media blitz if one of those appearances didn't pay off. Just a little late. I have great respect for you. I have great respect for your tenacity, for the fact that you just don't give up. But Rod, you're fired. That was, of course, public official A and individual one, when Blagojevich appeared on Donald Trump's game show, Celebrity Apprentice. And this was now President Trump earlier this year. Yes, uh, we have commuted the sentence of Rod Blagojevich. He served eight years in jail. It's a long time, and uh, I watched his wife on television. Uh, I don't know him very well. I met him a couple of times. He was on for a short while of The Apprentice years ago. Seemed like a very nice person, don't know him, but he uh, served eight years in jail. There's a long time to go. Many people disagree with the sentence. He's a Democrat, he's not a Republican. Uh, It was a prosecution by the same people, Comey, Fitzpatrick, the same group. James Comey, by the way, who headed the investigation into Trump withholding aid to Ukraine until they agreed to investigate Joe Biden's son had no connection to the Blagojevich investigation. He wasn't even with the Justice Department at the time. James Comey was working in the private sector as an attorney for Lockheed Martin from 2005 to 2010. I don't know whether the President of the United States was using Blagojevich to discredit the Justice Department that had investigated him. 
or if he was trying to piss off the Democratic-led but bipartisan vote that impeached him, or if he was setting precedent for an eventual pardon of Roger Stone. The most terrifying prospect to me, maybe Trump was telling the truth. Maybe he is just winging the nation that badly, ruling our COVID-cloistered lives off the top of his head. Maybe he did just see a lady on TV who seemed nice, and that was the car our rat terrier of a president decided to bark at that day. The big argument is that 14 years is an unreasonable, extreme sentence for what amounts to failing to get anyone to bribe him. But here's the thing. The federal sentencing guidelines advise 30 years to life for the crimes Blagojevich was convicted of. Judge James Zagel found that extreme, and he found an effective guideline range of 188 to 235 months, which is roughly 15 to 20 years. But then, after finding Blagojevich accepted responsibility for his crimes at sentencing, Zagel reduced the range again, down to 151 to 188 months. 168 months, 14 years, was smack dab in the middle. So it was a tough sentence, but a completely legal one. In Ryan's sentencing, the prosecutors asked for 8 to 10 years, saying that was within the federal sentencing guidelines for Ryan's misdeeds. Judge Rebecca Paulmeyer shaved off a few years given the then 72-year-old Ryan's age. Some people think Blagojevich lost all his political friends behind the scene. No one left to help fight off the prosecutor's efforts to make an example of him. Some think George Ryan's death row maneuvers did get him the sympathy he needed. Or maybe that Blagojevich just pissed off Zagel by going on all the game shows. I've talked to lawyers who think Blagojevich got screwed, and one former prosecutor, not Fitzgerald, who simply froze said that what they were able to prove was, quote, just the tip of the iceberg, and then quickly changed the topic. When Rob Blagojevich got out of prison, it looked like the old hits would still pack him in. The same street where reporters camped out for images of a stunned-looking governor arrested in a tracksuit was again filled with TV cameras, radio reporters with mics out, photographers snapping, passerbys gaping, some testifying their love for the man to the willing throng of journalists pulled from, you know, socially relevant assignments to document this sideshow. He showed up, tossing classic quotable blagoisms, like he was now a Trumpocrat. He signed autographs and started booking TV appearances where he would claim to be a political prisoner, claim he was framed by federal prosecutors, claim there's evidence out there that would exonerate him and bring true reform to America's corrupt criminal justice system. This was the response of CNN's Anderson Cooper. Uh, Governor Blagojevich, I do wish you the best. I, I really, I'm glad for your family that you're out. And, and I, <laughs> I don't know, I by the way you were asking me questions. I'm well, no, sorry, honestly, I appreciate you no, having no, me but, on. But just honestly, yes. I, I just, look, I have no problem with you getting out. I think, you know, the president can commute whoever he wants. I just think I wish, you know, you're besmirching prosecutors who actually, uh, who are no longer in, the, in, in government, but, you know, prosecutors are important in our system, and you are going after the very basis of our justice system, which has plenty of problems, but, but you know, part of the thing right. is you got out, you do have an obligation to at least admit what you did wrong, and you refuse to do that, and you're creating a whole new alternate universe of facts, and that may be big in politics today, but it's still, frankly, just bullshit. We've got to leave it there. Well, Thank no, you, it's Governor. not bullshit. I lived it myself. It's not bullshit at all. That was the end of the segment. Rod Blagojevich's time was done. 
I'd like to think that the fact this was the reaction in 2020 to Rod's old act means we've gotten sick of the celebrity politician. Joy Bayer and Jon Stewart ruffled Blago's hair on TV. Jimmy Fallon ruffled then-candidate Trump's hair. We've seen what happens when we put a weird-haired huckster reality TV star in charge, and we've wised up, I hope. We tired of the, well, the bullshit. But that might be too optimistic. What happened to Rod Blagojevich isn't penance for his political misdeeds. It's just what happens to all celebrities. The stadium concerts become mid-sized clubs, become county fairs. The lights dim. No one wants to hear the same old jokes, hear the same songs. It's not 2009 anymore. I've heard this one before. And it wasn't funny the first time. The former governor is now on Cameo.com, a website where celebrities sell personalized video greetings. For $2,500, Caitlyn Jenner will wish you a happy birthday. For $500, Mike Tyson, Ric Flair, or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar will congratulate your brother on his new job. $300 will get you John Cleese from Money Python. CeeLo Green, Riker from Star Trek The Next Generation, and the actress who played Ginny Weasley in the Harry Potter movies charged $200 for a hello. Rob Bogoyevich goes for $75. The price has dropped from $100. Could be worse. Roger Stone and Anthony Scaramucci only charge $50. It'd be tempting in sort of a daily show, last week, tonight way, to end this with a cameo video message from Rod Blagojevich, asking him why he did it. Was it worth it? But I can't. It was fun for Letterman and John Oliver and John Stewart to slap around an unapologetic, powerful man. At this point, he would just be punching down. I wish peace for Rod Blagojevich, celebrity politician. I wish he finds solace and meaning in a quiet life with the family whose lives he missed due entirely to his own actions. I hope the hunger for fame and power that you can still see flickering on his eyes when he appears on TV, I hope it flickers out. I hope he learns what he has now that the cameras have switched away from him. To quote the Tao Te Ching, to know when you have enough is to be immune from disgrace. Rod Blagojevich, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be right back with Richard Jenkins. Next week on the Chicago Corruption Walking Tour. Um, I wasn't that enthused to have a wedding cake. I'm a bit of an ice cream person myself, but the caterers were like, you get a cake, what do you want to put on it? And I, Nick and I were like, well, let's put our favorite district. It just seemed like an obvious answer. Um, and so the district that we really love is the Illinois 4th. 